This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Lisa Morton, horror author and screenwriter about her new book, Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances. It was out originally with Reaction in 2020, and it is in paper book this year, 2022, also with Reaction. Hello, Lisa, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Yana. It's fun to be here. That's really nice to see you. So how's LA this morning? LA is uh, a bit breezy, but in the nice mid-70s, the kind of weather that we wish we had all year. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds lovely. Yeah, my mother woke up to snow again. So, uh, you know, that's it's not the California situation. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, can, I can definitely see the benefit of... Uh, an, a nice, a nice seventies all all year round kind of item. Sounds nice, <clears throat> uh, but you know, I also you have to drive, so right <laughs> there balances, checks and balances. It all evens out. All right, so um, let's just. So let's. I want to talk first about you as an author. Your publications list is really interesting. Um, you're a writer of fiction as well as nonfiction, and a good deal of it is in the horror genre. Um, so can you tell us what sparked like what your interest in these all kind of all things macabre and terrifying? Yeah, it's something I've always loved. I, I always describe myself as that weird little girl who, at Halloween, I wanted to dress as a monster, not a princess. Um, and I was very fortunate that my parents liked horror, too. My mom would stay up late at night with me watching horror movies, and my dad and I would make little monster models and things like that. And um, But I, I think the real turning point for me came when I was 15 and I saw this movie called The Exorcist and mm-hmm. uh, I was it, it was in a theater when it had just been released and it's it's really hard now to describe what seeing that movie in 1974 was like because there hasn't been a movie like that since that has just completely walloped an audience the way that one did. And by the time I left that theater, I said, I want to be able to do that to people. Um, And I actually, up until that point, wanted to be an anthropologist. And that two hours in that theater completely changed my life. And I said, that's it. I want to, at that point, I said, I wanted to be a screenwriter. Um, and that was what I studied in college, and it wasn't until I had some very, very minor success as a screenwriter that I realized this is actually not what I want to do. Um, and then I moved into prose and 
nonfiction and that was my home. All right. That makes perfect sense. You know, I can see the interest, though, in anthropology in this book, in your book, um, Calling the Spirits, very much. This is an anthropological look at kind of a culture of people and what we're into in different periods and times. So that makes some sense. I see that following through. Um, And there is something about like this fundamental, you know, what scares us is so important to us. What our monsters are really tell us a lot about a society. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think also the fact that we seem to have this need to sort of poke at those fears is something that's interesting, too. That's uh, that's certainly universal. I think that goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity. But it seems to have become a little bit more pronounced over the last 30 years as we've seen this huge explosion of popularity in things like Halloween and haunted attractions and horror movies. And um, I think that living in a more and more fearful world, we feel that need to more and more playfully test those fears. Sure. Yeah. I was just thinking, I was just watching whatever the latest Netflix reality haunted thing is. And I, I don't even, I can't, I seriously have no idea what it was. You know, though, you know what I'm talking about. And I was thinking about how many of those there are. And I don't, I don't know if it's just reality television as a genre, but I, it just seems like there's so much of this happening. It sure does. And um, that is something that is so recent. I think that started in 2004 when uh, ghost hunters hit the airwaves. So that's less than 20 years old. And and you are absolutely right that there are, I think, hundreds of those kind of shows that are either are on now or have been on within the last 15 years. And it's, it's very interesting that I think that has both come out of something happening happening culturally, but also fed into our insane preoccupation now with paranormal investigation and the idea that we can download things onto our phone and go into a building and interact with spirits of the dead is just such an incredible idea to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I one of my friends has this app that she can like tell when spirits are present. I'm like what the. You're- Okay. I wonder how much that's, I'm thinking about too, like um, Gen Z is super like into um, ghosts, like their astrology and kind of magical thinking and tarot cards are everywhere. Now that's, there's gotta be some relation there, I would think. There does. And, and it, it also kind of, I think speaks to something that I've spoken about before with other podcasts, I, a couple of, um, at the beginning of this year, I was contacted by the CNN podcast Harry Anton is doing about statistics. And he said, we want to talk about the rise of belief in paranormal during COVID. And I said, oh, great, because I predicted that when we went into lockdown in 2020. And he was surprised to hear that. And we talked about the fact that throughout history, whenever you see traumatic giant events, whether it's a world war or a pandemic, belief in the paranormal spikes. And so I suspect that poor Gen Z has had to deal with a lot of these kind of things, which could lead to why they seem to have a preoccupation with some of these kind of things. Yeah, those kids have gone through it. Um, And it's just such a, you know, at least you and I have a much longer bit of life. We can compare these these two years are not, you know, half of the time I've been an adult. So right. those, yeah. 
or kids or, you know, I've, I'm, I have a group of 20 year olds right now. Their entire adult life has been spent in pandemic time. And it's it'll be interesting to see how they recover from this. Um, <clears throat> so uh, your nonfiction work is really into like has been a, work has been a focus around Halloween a lot. That so that apparently is even the most more special, more specifically beloved thing for you. It it is, although I kind of fell into it by accident. It was not a deliberate choice on my part. Um, back around two thousand and one, I think it was, I had just done a film book with this publisher, and um, they said, "Hey, we'd love to do another book. Do you have any ideas?" And I looked at things they had just brought out and they had just brought out something called the Christmas Encyclopedia. So almost almost on a whim, I said to them, hey, nobody's ever done a Halloween encyclopedia. What do you think? And so they loved that idea. And um, that, of course, involved a couple of years of research on my part. And this was back before anything was digitized. So research at that time was endless trips to libraries. Um, and I gathered so much information for that first Halloween book that it was really easy to just keep rolling it over into other books. Um, and then around 2010 or 2011, Reaction approached me and said, hey, we're doing a series of books on holidays. Would you like to do one on Halloween? And I loved that idea, partly because I was already a fan of Reaction's books, which I've always loved the layout and the fact that they use such great illustrations and so forth. But also at that point, I hadn't written a narrative history. Um, and that really appealed to me after doing something kind of dry, like an encyclopedic reference. Okay. Yeah, this makes sense. I can see how, and then from the, um, from, is it trick or treat, right? Then the, the, which great title, the move here makes sense, um, to, to calling the spirits, but, um, what, what brought you around to seances? I, again, I cannot take credit for that idea. That was one of my um, editors at Reaction approached me with that. And I actually, there's a book I did in between uh, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween and Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances. There's a third book I did in between those two for Reaction called Ghost, A Haunted History. And that was one where they had approached me and said, we're doing now a series of books on like creatures and entities um, is there one you'd like to do? And I actually said right off the bat to them, I, how about zombies? And they said, well, we've already got somebody doing zombies. What do you, and they gave me a list of things they wanted to do. And I picked ghost out of that because I've always loved ghost stories. Um, and so when they approached me about doing a seance book, it was like, sure, I've already done half the research on this one because I've written a book about ghosts. And um, it was, the writing the seance book took me in some really surprising directions. Um, I was very pleased to discover that there is a massive archive of digitized material online at a site that's called something like IAPSOP.com, and I forget what that stands for, but it is apparently like two collectors who have digitized their own collection of thousands of pieces of material from the spiritualist era, mainly from the 19th century. And we're talking spiritualist pamphlets and newsletters and periodicals and books. And it's it's an absolutely incredible collection. And it made it so easy 
to research this book and also so kind of revealing in interesting ways. Um, I was not expecting to find this intense belief that the spiritualist had that just repeatedly flew in the face of debunking after debunking um, that amount of faith in their religion, because it was a religion for them and still is a practicing religion, um, was really interesting. The fact that when they started, spiritualism had two credos. They, and one of those was the idea that they were the only religion that could be proven scientifically. And it didn't matter that they were repeatedly disproven scientifically. Um, I really loved reading about some of the logic knots they would tie themselves into to try and justify um, the lack of evidence and scientists repeatedly disproving them. And um, it also was fun to write because it was a very scandalous circle in the 19th century among the spiritualists, which made for much more entertaining um things than just the usual sort of dry history. Sure. Just like there, and just there, this happened and this happened. There's there, you see this interweaving circle of really interesting characters. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. No, no dullards here. Um, So I was thinking about how, what, what we might like to talk about with our audience. And I, let's just talk about a couple of the interesting, like a couple people from the book. And I'm, personally interested in the Fox sisters where we kind of get the whole thing going. So what can you tell us about the, the Fox sisters and really the origin of the seance of the modern seance? Yeah. The Fox sisters are kind of how I framed the whole book because it does start with them. And it starts in 1848 with these two teenage girls, Kate and Maggie Fox. And they are living in this big farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere near Rochester, New York with their mom and dad. They have other siblings who are now adults and not living at home. So it's just the two girls with their parents. And they start hearing strange sounds coming from around this old hot house. And they start to realize they can communicate with these sounds. That they can say, oh, rap a certain number of times for yes or for no. And word of this gets out. And within weeks, they have already become a little uh, minor celebrities within their community and hundreds of people are now showing up at this farmhouse asking to, to witness this and they start doing things like setting up letters along a table and um, asking the spirit to wrap whatever they point to one of these letters and people start to believe that this story about how there was a peddler who was murdered by this owner of the house at some point well Their older sister, Leah, who does live in Rochester, starts to sense that there's some money to be made from this. She's been making her living mainly giving music lessons, but now she brings Kate and Maggie to live with her in Rochester. And she starts charging people to come in and witness this. And this is when we really get the form of the seance, which is a group of people who are gathered around a table with someone designated to act as medium and they witness miraculous contact with the spirits from the beyond. And it sounds strange to say this, but that was revolutionary in terms of human attempts to communicate with the other world. Up until that point, it was a solitary activity. It was something that you would practice either upon the advice of a um, seer or a, a 
magician, that kind of thing, or you were a magician yourself and, and reciting these insane spells out of these old grimoires. And so the idea that this was done in a sort of convivial atmosphere, that it was something that could be done on command every time was absolutely amazing. And it caught on like crazy. And within a few years, there were hundreds, if not thousands of mediums all over the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and the Fox sisters were the great superstars, though, and remained that way for several decades. Um, but what's interesting about them is they have a tragic ending. Um, in 1888, they have both taken up alcoholism, they are somewhat impoverished, and finally Maggie gives a big confession that the whole thing was faked, it was all fraud on their part, that the rapping sounds were made by their incredible ability to crack their toe knuckles in a way that was very loud, um, and that they defrauded everyone, and, and she, uh, to me, the most poignant thing that she said was that she had actually tried to communicate with spirits, that she had gone out to graveyards in the middle of the night and sat on tombstones and so forth and prayed for something to reach out to her and nothing ever had. Um, and I, it's very sad. I used that to close the book. Oops, spoiler alert. Um <laughs> <laughs> because I did find that very moving um, and kind of, in some ways, uh, an ultimate summation of where I think a lot of the mediums went, that they had these shining moments of stardom and then wound up in these these sort of tragic endings quite often. I'm, I find it so interesting when I think about, you know, who's able to access the supernatural and who gets to talk, right? And it's a solitary, it's often, or it's a solitary thing with magicians and that's its own thing, right? But like often, you know, who it's priests, it's some of the most powerful recognized, like officially authorized people in the whole world are the ones who get to go talk to God or the dead or cross the veil, you know, whatever, speaking to the other side. And here it's a couple girls, right? Young farm girls. That's that's so interesting. And then they like all these mediums who are just kind of like not special at all, you know? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think that's part of the appeal of spiritualism that it was very egalitarian, which sort of tied into other progressive causes it became aligned with. It was. Many of the spiritualists were pro-labor movement. They were um, in the anti-vivisection movement at the time, which would be like our modern equivalent uh, would be the um, animal rights movement. Um, it was really interesting that it had this whole progressive side, abolition. They, the Fox sisters actually knew Frederick Douglass, which is incredible. Um, yeah, so, and I, I also have a theory about the fact that so many of the, the star mediums were women. Um, I think if you look at what a woman was typically destined for in the 19th century, it was housewife and mother. Um, if she didn't want to do that, she might end up working in a factory or as a domestic, neither of which is a very attractive opportunity, but... Along comes this idea that you could be a medium 
And you, if you were a medium who was successful, you would probably be hobnobbing not just with the elite, but the super elite. I mean, these people were performing for kings and queens and earls and dukes and lords. And so I think it was a very attractive alternative to the opportunities that women had at the time quite often. Sure. And there seems also like it seems kind of natural to me. It seems like it makes sense. It fits in with the nurturing, the mothering, the like women are the religious educators. It it seems to suit. But I mean, they're not they're not alone. You write about the Davenports, which are these very famous boys who talk to spirits. And Daniel Douglas Hume, who was the most famous of all of the spiritualist mediums, um, And by the way, he's interesting, too, because there's been a lot of speculation that he was possibly gay um, and that that was part of his appeal to many of his clients. Now, some of the he was greatly beloved by the lords and the upper crust of British society. And there are accounts of him sleeping with the lords, which apparently was not particularly unusual back then. But it has been suggested that part of his fame may have rested on that. Um, certainly, there was always an erotic element to the seances. There was always that idea that you were in this dark room and you were touching the people next to you and you were engaged in these miraculous, wondrous things. And so I think it's possible that many of the mediums capitalized on that. I know for sure that um, somebody like Marjorie Crandon, who is now known as the Witch of Lime Street and was involved with Houdini and so forth, she often performed her seances in the nude. Um, and she was very attractive. And, of course, the idea she was presenting was, well, this way you know I don't have anything hidden on me. And then she would produce ectoplasm in her seances, which was this filmy material that was supposed to be the matter of the spirits and was probably cheesecloth that was either swallowed or... in the case of Crandon, Houdini thought she actually was producing it from her vagina. Um, so, yeah, there were <laughs> some pretty pretty serious erotic overtones to some of this stuff. And, I mean, even necessarily without the erotic, though that's, that's there, you've convinced me of that. But as well, I mean, it's just a very intimate situation, is, isn't it? Right. And so another thing that's kind of different than what you're getting from the organized religion, where there is a dour man in Protestant upstate New York, like standing there telling you what to do, as opposed to you being part of this situation where you're intimately connected with this kind of famous medium and everyone you know or want to know. And the, the seances were joyful. That's that's something that I think a lot of modern people might be surprised by. Because we are now so conditioned by decades of horror films to imagine that seances are always frightening. To the spiritualist and the first people who were experiencing seances, they were fantastic. They were one part revivalist meeting, one part party, one part magic show. Um, And over and over, I would find these accounts from people who attended them that would say it was the most fantastic night of my life. So they were really wonderful, miraculous, gleeful, joyous things, um, unlike the sort of horrific things that we now associate with seances. Yeah, what happened there? When did we, I mean, because the seances you described it, it really feels more like 
a Southern Baptist revival um, with cocktails, maybe uh, that than any than something I've ever seen on television, right? Or movies, lots of movies with seances. Yeah, there's kind of a history behind that that I think starts with the Catholic Church in the early 20th century. They about 1919, um, as a response to World War One, a lot more people again were finding spiritualism and were using Ouija boards. And the Catholic Church actually put out a book about that called The New Black Magic. And and the book is insane. It actually says things like people who repeatedly use Ouija boards will become imbeciles. I mean, it uses that exact word. It's crazy. So that was part of where the Ouija board and seances start to get their bad rep. That was good Catholic Church propaganda. But, of course, it isn't until that movie I talked about earlier, The Exorcist, that we get the first major media representation of a of an evil Ouija board. Um, because in The Exorcist, the girl's possession starts when she's playing with a Ouija board. And that's kind of where the Ouija board got that reputation for being a gateway that opens you to demonic forces. And, of course, the movies ran with that after that. Sure. Well, and that sticks. I mean, I've been to a slumber party. I know how scary Ouija boards can be. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) But I mean, that's funny in itself, right? That like, I know very well that demonic possession is what follows playing with the Ouija board. I have seen The Exorcist. I I know these things. But at 13, I still, the first of all, there was one in my, all of my friends' houses, which is interesting enough. But we still played with it. Like that kind of, again, just a little tapping the places you're not supposed to go. Yeah, of course. I I had the same experience. And um, it's fun to, I mean, even at a young age, I was somewhat skeptical. I always have been. But to me, I'm fascinated by like the idiomotor response. Are my fingers doing things I don't even know that they're doing kind of stuff? Um, It's always been interesting to me. Yeah, and there was always the kid that you knew was pushing it around, but that right, it's like there's a there's a fraud in the space. We know this is fraudulent. Somehow it's still terrifying. I came back to that image a lot when I was reading your book as well. Um, yeah. So, um, tell me, can you tell us a little bit more about like? So you said revival. Um, what the seance looks like? Like who's invited to these things? Like who's going to a seance? Um, it would depend on the medium and on, um, for example, I mean, many of the mediums who were not the superstars would operate in a, like a side, they'd have their parlor in a side alley. They might have a sort of procurer who would go out Mm -hmm. and find people to pay to attend their seances. But if you were one of the star mediums, you were sought after. And getting um, a spot at a table at one of your seances was a big deal for the people who were attending. And so uh, somebody like, say, Florence Cook, who was a teenage medium circa 1870 or so, who was one of the superstar mediums, um, attractive young girl, was obviously very charismatic, very good at this. Um, to get into a Florence Cook seance, you would probably have had to have known someone who knew her. She had patrons and sponsors. 
Um, she ended up spending six months with a very famous scientist named William Crooks, who tested her repeatedly in his house and ended up, by the way, announcing that she was completely genuine. Um, this was a man who went on to be knighted for his contributions to science, but he believed that many of the mediums he tested, including Daniel Douglas Hume, were authentic and were genuinely powerful. And uh, later on, Florence Cook claimed that she had had an affair with him um, while she was being tested by him in his home. But um, the getting invited to those kind of things, you often were someone who was um, royalty or a celebrity. People who attended Florence's seances included People like Florence Marriott, who was the daughter of Captain Marriott. They were both famous art, uh, famous authors at the time. Florence would actually go on to write some sort of spiritualist-tinged material and ghost stories. And um, uh, Hume, in particular, had like incredible clients. Robert Browning and Elizabeth Browning attended some of his seances. Um, the, the most famous event in Hume's career was something called the Ashley House Levitation that was attended by two British lords. So it was, on the one hand, you had, with the superstar mediums, people desperately wanting to get in and be seated with them like they were uh, the musical superstars at the, of the time and you wanted to, to get into their concert. Or you had the sort of run-of-the-mill workaday mediums who would um, do a combination of having, like I said, they might have a procurer who would go out and find them clients, or they would just depend on word of mouth. That's so fascinating to think about that as like this cross, that it that it's so cross-cultural, so cross-class. Like there's these very, very popular elite people, and then there's, you know, people in the streets who really just really miss their loved one and want to talk to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It feels unique. So what is it that makes a superstar medium? How do you become a really power? How do I get to invite royalty over to my house to see me commune with the dead? Well, I, I think you could look at in our modern situation, you could look at somebody like John Edwards um, or the late Sylvia Brown. These are people who are very charismatic. They are very good at what they do. You can be skeptical and still admire what they do. Um, I think they're probably people who are naturally intuitive anyways and very good at um, reading people. And so with the superstar mediums of the past, I think it was the same thing. They were probably people who were showmen, who were charismatic who put on a really good show because that was absolutely part of it um my personal favorite medium of them all is a woman named helen duncan who was actually from the mid-20th century and helen was noted for having a spirit guide named walter who was very caustic and many of reading transcriptions of her um of the things Walter would say while Helen was in a trance state is frequently hilarious. So I can only imagine what a good time going to one of her seances must have been. Walter would say things like, my medium is so fat, I can't stand her. And um, I'm sure that there are people who actually, in fact, we do have eyewitness accounts of people attending her, her seances and saying, well, I'm not convinced, but I sure had a good time. 
Although it's, it seems like being a pretty girl doesn't hurt, right? But it certainly does not. Yeah. Um, and even still, I think certainly people like Florence Cook depending depended on that. And but quite often the the mediums were older women um, who were not necessarily pretty. So again, you have to think that they were probably just very charismatic and very good at putting on a show and. Um, a little bit, I mean, if I was being really, really nasty here, I would say kind of the same things that make a good successful con artist. Well, I mean, I think there's an, there's definitely an interpretation where this, these are successful con artists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's also a thing I was thinking about when I was reading, I was about, um, the kind of overlap with um, mesmerism, with the interest in fairies, right? I, I'm a Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his fairy obsession is interesting. Um, so what's going on? Like, why? what's happening in the late 19th century that makes people want to talk to ghosts? Or like, why, why do we have all the good ghost stories from the late 19th century? Well, I, there were a lot of things going on in the world in general throughout the 19th century. I mean, the whole world was in a gigantic state of flux. Everything from industry to travel to chemistry to philosophy was changing gigantically. Um, and a lot of the philosophers who came in in the Age of Enlightenment had rejected the sort of earlier, more spiritualist philosophies in favor of materialism. And so by the time you get to the 19th century, you have a lot of people who feel kind of lost and abandoned in the middle of this mad rush forward of progress. And they're seeking something that's back to that sort of spiritualist side. So the first thing that pops up is mesmerism. And this is not what I think people now think mesmerism is because you hear that word now and you think, oh, it's just hypnotism. But no, it was when it was started in the 18th century by Franz Mesmer, it was this belief in healing. It was this idea that the body had magnetic poles and that you got sick when those magnetic poles were out of alignment. And he believed he had this system where he could realign those magnetic poles. And eventually one of his acolytes actually discovers hypnotism and includes that as part of this whole thing. And that ends up becoming the sort of centerpiece of mesmerism. But before that, it was this thing where people would gather together around these big tubs and grab these iron rods, and it was believed that you would be uh, you would be healed from doing that. And so again, it was a group activity that people found solace and comfort in, and a certain spiritual side. But when spiritualism comes along in 1848, it just completely replaces mesmerism. It's much more appealing to people. Um, and it appeals to the people who I think felt both abandoned by philosophy and religion. Um, on the one hand, they didn't like the strictly materialist philosophy that was in vogue. And on the other hand, they didn't like the strictures of religion. Um, so they find this new form of belief that they can very happily embrace, and it becomes just very popular. Um, and it, I think maybe part of it, too, was the way it aligned with those other progressive movements. Do you see um, something similar going on 
now. I'm thinking about, right, fewer Americans than ever say they believe in God or are part of an organized religion. That's I live in the Netherlands where they, it is a completely secular society, etc. Right? Do you see this happening now? And that, does that account for why Supernatural was on television for 15 years? <laughs> yes, I do see it happening now. And in fact, um, it's interesting that, yes, as belief in re- traditional religion seems to be declining, belief in the paranormal is is going way up, um, increasing hugely. In fact, I was just digging into some statistics on that the other day, and it was amazing that not only did something like 43% of Americans believe in demons, not ghosts, but demons, but this was the statistic that blew me away. 10% of atheists believed in the existence of demons. Now, what is that? I don't even understand that. Um, no, that's not possible. That's the whole point. Like, that was either some very flawed methodology on that surveying, or I don't know. I don't know what's happening, what that means. But yeah, it definitely is going way up. Um, as we were talking about earlier, that, that explosion of popularity in the paranormal shows, the idea that everybody wants to be a ghost hunter now. Um, and... Yeah, it's something that is definitely, you're right, it does seem like it is replacing the belief in traditional religion more and more. Um, Well, and also Supernatural was on television for 15 years because it was awesome. Right, of course. (laughs) It's it's all to be clear on that. I I wouldn't want anyone to think I don't love that show. Um, Yeah, so... This like leads into my last question. I'm taking up so much of your time. I'm there's just one more, which is, uh, what are you working on next? Um, what's what's on now? I am doing my first big coffee table art book, which is something I have always wanted to do, and this was offered to me late last year, and I leapt at it. Um, it is called The Art of the Zombie Movie. It will be out from Applause Books in the fall of 2023. It's been a real learning experience because putting together a coffee table art book is like nothing else. Um, and so it's been really fun to work through. And we are um, at the point right now where the illustrations, 512 of them, have been gathered and laid out. The text has been written. And my last big job as the author, and this sounds very weird, and it's one of those things you never think about until you are writing one of these books, is to supply the captions. And they have a model for these captions, which is not just one sheet for the 1943 I Walked with a Zombie, but they want the captions to almost form an alternate text. So I am contracted to deliver 27,000 words worth of captions. Um, and that's what I'm working on now in that book. Oh my God, Lisa, that sounds kind of terrifying. That sounds ter- That is a horror show. Oh my God. Um, it's that- terrifying, but it's also fun because you, you try to find like cool little pieces of data that you can slide into those captions. Yeah, stuff that didn't make the major narrative. I can see that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, So this is the second time you brought up zombies. Uh, You're a zombie lover? I am. I've been a fan of those ever since I was a kid in college, and I saw Dawn of the Dead on opening night, and it just absolutely, the movie absolutely freaked me out. This was not 
my my experience with the with the exorcist was very much me watching the audience and not the movie and my experience with dawn of the dead was like i couldn't sleep that night that movie just absolutely freaked me out but it fascinated me that it had that impact on me and it made me a lifelong uh, fan of zombies and i'm still so interested in why they have become such a cultural icon and yeah i mean there's there are questions they raise that are interesting about the line between life and death and what what is you know what is being alive even mean but i can't figure out why right now right like yeah i i think part of it has always been that they speak to our fear of conformity um mm-hmm. that the ultimate fear is that we will just become these walking consumers that have no personality or no willpower um and then of course the flip side of all of that is the the idea that as the zombie hunter you are empowered to just shoot whatever you want to act out on all of your impulses to become a hero in the process and so i think it's a sort of interesting counterplay between those two things that makes them so popular oh yeah that really suits like the modern world that makes sense yeah all right wow so and thank you for teaching me one more thing today. One more thing I got to learn from you. Um, Lisa Morton, it was really nice to talk to you about Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances, um, which is an absolutely enjoyable book. Really good. Um, loads of really cool illustrations as well. And there's a lot in here, listeners, we didn't talk about um, from the, I mean, early on uh, necromancy, like we go, it goes back farther and goes much deeper than what we discussed today. So I highly encourage you to go listen to it. Um, hit, look at our website, there'll be a direct link. Um, and meanwhile, for you, Lisa, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Uh, this was fun. Excellent. Great. Take care. Thanks. You too.